I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Ariane de Bonvoisin, author, she's a New York Times bestselling author, and author of Giggles and Joy series, Spiritual Life Lessons for Kids. Imagine tapping into the beauty of a child's innate wisdom through the sharing of sweet and wise words of guidance and valuable life skills. Ariane shares Giggles and Joy does just this with a healthy dose of enlightened humor and profound yet simple messages for babies and children up to 10 years old. The series includes three special books, Giggles and Joy, You Are Loved, and Being You. Each inspirational title encompasses skills for children that help affirm their self-worth, gives them a healthy sense of the world around them, and provides guidance on navigating their lives at any stage. Ariane is featured on the Today Show, CBS Early Show, and CNN, and now she's on the Catherine Zock Show. Welcome to the show. Nice to have Mm -hmm. you here today. (laughs) Uh, Great to be with you, too, Catherine. Thank you. Well, you've gotten many testimonials and many accolades for your book, and um, one of the things, the one that I read that that sort of struck me said that... uh, it's a delightful book series to help raise conscious children. Um, and mm. I guess my first to, when you talk about raising conscious children, uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I, I really believe that the focus right now with children is more on educating their minds, taking care of their bodies. And if you look at it, you know, there's a reason why so many people, traditions, religious traditions, even they, they focus on mind, body, spirit. And I don't feel like we're focused enough or having a conversation about what does it mean to nurture a child's spirit? What does it mean to teach them actual spirituality, you know, not from a, a specific tradition, but more from a universal perspective? So to me, when I, I talk of spiritual kids or conscious kids, they're children that have a an awareness beyond just their mind or who they are or what their name is or what their religion is. It's children who exist well in this world, children who are in touch with their heart, are in touch with their their innate truth through their intuition, that have their own sense of wonder and belief. So it's it's more bringing in that aspect back to the conversation. Well, you talk about that your book is appropriate also for ba- babies, babies and yeah. not just children up to 10 years old, but you're talking babies. So I want to, I mean, you're starting right from the beginning, obviously. And yes. Yeah. So to ha- help people to wrap their minds around being spiritual, teaching a baby to be spiritual. I think what happens to most of us or many of us, it's, uh, I'll say this, is we don't start taking a look at maybe our spiritual sides of the, the spiritual sides of ourselves till we're old even till we're way past adolescence so you say let's start from the beginning and this is what you do through these the, the book but okay so how do you do that with babies how do we start from the beginning yeah, yeah. well you know i mean every everyone is different in terms of how of what they believe about a baby and i i feel like there's been a lot of research now that shows that babies are aware, babies are listening, babies are learning, babies are imprinting things very, very early on. You know, even if it's the, the neuroscience research in terms of how their brain learns, from the age of zero to six, that is sort of the prime years. And so, you know, my, my personal belief backed up by that science really tells me that, that that children are listening and children are aware and children are absorbing things. I've had, I've had parents read these books to children in utero, 
you know, they just want to give them a sense of uh, the types of things that are discussed in the book. You know, we talk about gratitude. We talk about kindness. We talk about self-love. We talk about diversity. We talk about beauty. We talk about themes that, you know, no one's going to have any problem with because they are all sort of aligned with any parent, grandparent, teacher, caretaker who is around children, you know, wants to be able to share this and and bring this to their children at any age. I find, you know, it's very personal. Like the the older siblings, the eight, nine, ten-year-old, love reading this to their younger siblings because they feel like they're, you know, in a position of teaching them stuff and they can can guide them sort of through one of the life skills. Um, So, you know, it's very personal. I've had people pick this up as a great baby shower gift and it just becomes, you know, part of, the library of a child that they can go to when, you know, they might be going through something. So let's talk about it in a personal sense. Let's, let's make it personal, put a face on mm. it. Give us examples from the book. Start like what you would, you know, you're reading to the baby in utero. Um, and, and what are, <laughs> and I know in, when I was having babies, it was, you would, you know, if you sang to them, uh, that was a good thing or you played music and, and, uh, but, now we're actually sort of introducing them to spirituality. Take a baby, an infant, and then what about a two-year-old? What do you do? Examples from the book. Well, I'll take, you know, one of the, one of the poems or skills that was very important to teach children that came through me and a lot of parenting groups that I was in was really giving a child a sense of being loved not for their performance, not because they could walk, not because they could eat, not because they were going to a big school, but just because they were worthy and they were enough. So there's one of the books is called You Are Loved. And, you know, one of the poems in there specifically talks about this. And it starts with you are loved, you are safe, you are guided, you are protected. There is nothing to fear. All fear is an illusion. Nothing and no one can hurt you. There's nothing for you to be or do or change. You are already perfect. You are worthy. You are wanted. You are unique. You are beautiful. You are brilliant. You are good enough. You know, and it keeps going. But those sort of messages, I mean, I read these and I feel like I need to be reminded of this because, you know, our, our self-dialogue gets so negative so quickly, even with children, that the more this is sort of repeated to them, the more that there's sort of a knowing that, you know, love is there no matter what. You know, there's another another life skill which is about safety. You know, so many parents today would say that the world is unsafe. And so guess what? We bring up our children feeling like this is an unsafe world. This is not a good, true, and beautiful world. And so, you know, one of the skills is called you are safe and really teaching them what safety is and that safety is, is a sense, it's a feeling, it's more on the inside. So to me, the earlier we start with some of those bigger life principles, what I've found too is that the, the person who's reading it to the children also gets transformed because they can see where, where they are potentially projecting something onto a child um, or they have been informed by their childhood um, to to just look at what's there for them. You know, for me, conscious parenting, if we talk about the parenting side or conscious grandparenting, is about, you know, asking, well, what's here for me? You know, me as a parent, what is most important? And that is a very unique question to each and every one, every person. I think the first, well, getting back to the first thing that you said, uh, you know, te- one of the things I, I, looking at my own parenting and grandparenting, um, 
I tend to be an optimistic, positive person, but one of the things, and I do, not looking at the world in a negative way, but as you were reading that sort of list, you were great. You, I mean, you are good, you're beautiful, you're, um, I'm praising, and I do this, and I've done, I do this with, you know, when the baby starts, if the baby turns over, or if the baby does something mm -hmm. that, or starts to crawl, and it's always, oh, that's great, and, and that's wonderful, and so you're attaching all of those, uh, praises to something that they had to accomplish. And I think, I don't know if that's a bad thing or that should just be incorporated into what you've been talking about. It's mm. like, they're good if they can do this or they're good if they can do that or if yeah. they eat all their food or, you know, whatever the task yeah. is. Yeah. So, and then what we do is we start celebrating and creating little performers or achievers. And it happens very, very early on where that one-year-old realizes that, wow, mommy's face or daddy's face or granny's face changed when I did that, right? And at that moment, the achiever is born, which is not a bad thing, but it shouldn't be the only thing, right? And so for me, I always tell people, really praise the effort. Wow, that was really hard. And you got up and you tried again and you fell down and you must have really, you know, tried every way to get that done. And they get that that is also part of what is celebrated as opposed to just the goal. Yeah, uh, and I, I think uh, hopefully I did a little bit. I, I think I did both of that, I guess. I, I don't want to imply that it was always the babies had to achieve something or otherwise they didn't get praise. The second thing that you talked about, though, is like you have to, uh, to that it's not, a, not necessarily, it's not a fearful world. Don't be, you know, that you don't want to always be, and I think we do this a lot, particularly maybe here in our culture, you know, you have to be fearful of this and be afraid of this and be, uh, that's probably to me one of the most difficult things to sort of transcend, um, with kids. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. That you is know, not there's, easy, there's yeah. two very different styles of parenting and, you know, you can, you can see it in people and, it's not from a judgmental place. It's very often informed by their own life experiences and their worldly beliefs, which is there's fear-based parenting and there's more love-based parenting. And fear-based parenting is I have to get my kid into the right school, age five, in kindergarten, <laughs> so that they are set for life, right? But that's fear-based parenting. It's not, you know, everything's going to work out. We're going to make the right decisions. This child has and is going to be, you know, on its path because you, you can't, you can't protect your kids from hard times. You can't protect your kids from life. You can't sort of ensure that all the road is set so that they're going to get into a great college and they're going to get a safe job. Like that, that doesn't happen. And I find that, you know, the, the parents that want that to happen so often, you know, you, you have these expectations for your children and then not only can they not get away from them or they get away from them much later on in life realizing that that was not their choice. You know, and I, I'm personally an example of that. I followed what my parents told me to study. I went to the school they wanted to. I got the jobs they wanted to. And then at sort of 30, 32, I was like, wow, these are not my conscious choices. They're choices based on fitting in to the mass consciousness and expectations and pleasing the parents. And I feel like just let's sort of remove some of that on these children who, you know, if you really tune into them very early on, they're already showing and indicating passions, things they love, things they, they you know, want to sort of explore. Um, so, yeah, for, for me, you know, the, the hope of this, these books is to, 
if you were to sit with, you know, anyone from Gandhi or Mother Teresa or the Dalai Lama or Mandela, if one of your children was to sit with them for a day, like what would they absorb from, you know, beings who have, you know, in some ways done incredible things and are are sort of in touch with their emotion, their heart, but also, you know, their contribution to this world. And I feel that contribution skills is not something that we are focused enough with children and they really want to help. You talk to young children today, there's a lot around planet Earth, there's a lot about animals, there's a lot about homeless people. I've done a lot of readings at school and asked them this and their focus goes not to self, you know, it's not self-concern like so many of us grown-ups, where it's like me, 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 my life, my work, my body, my finances. The little ones, it's sort of other people concern, which is a beautiful thing, and we need to nurture that. Nurture that, exactly. And in each one of your books, that's something that uh, you emphasize, but you talk about uh, in your book, in these series, you have eight life lessons, uh, which all highlight what we've been talking about. Uh, let's talk about some of those. What are some of these uh, eight life skills, not eight life lessons? Yeah, eight yeah. life skills. Yeah. You know, like there's a few I'm, I'm very passionate about. So one is teaching a child to breathe um, as sort of a resource and a tool for them. Because first of all, as adults, we're not going to our breath. So when we are in a place of emotions, we're in a place of, you know, having had a bad day. Like how, how, do, you, how do you help a child have a bad day? You know, most of us don't let our children have bad days. We're like, why are you grumpy? Or, you know, there's a life skill in there called bye-bye bad day, where a child realizes that it's perfectly okay to have a bad day and that it's perfectly okay and they will see that their mom and or dad also has bad days. And there's a, a sharing of that, which is, which is real, which is human. So there's an allowance of the child to, you know, go through that. Um, there's one of the poems is called Take a Deep Breath, you know, and the illustrations are all highly colorfully illustrated for the child to get a little bit lost in that. Um, you know, it takes place in a school where everything's busy, everything's crazy, everything's going wrong, and they see all these different animals and how they are finding their center and learning how to breathe again. You know, for, for us in our house with children, you know, when things don't go well, we all go to breath. We're like, okay, we're going to take 40 breaths or 60 breaths. And we do lion breath, we do dragon breath, we do, you know, snake <laughs> breath. But it, it's, you know, when, when the breath is calm, the mind is calm. And we're in a busy, busy world. We're in a busy world for grown-ups. So imagine how busy it is for a little child and how crazy this world sometimes seems to them. So giving them a tool to calm down, you know, that's one of them. So breath is one. There's a poem called Bye Bye Bad Day. You know, there's someone, there's a poem about grown-ups and helping kids understand grown-ups and how unpredictable we are. One day mom's happy and the other day she's super unhappy. I don't know what happened. There's a poem about kindness and self-kindness. You know, we, we focus a lot on bringing up kind kids, but we're not focused on having them be kind towards themselves. And in some ways, self-kindness is even more important. You know, when there is they're, they're, what they're saying to themselves and believing about themselves, you know, that in some ways is going to inform how they treat other people. Um, there's one about truth. You know, how, how do you bring up that that characteristic in a child, like everyone wants to have kids that are honest and truthful, and yet very early on, a child learns if I tell the truth, mom's going to be upset. If I really tell her I ate the last cookie, 
I'm going to, she's going to be upset. I'm going to be punished. And so the kid goes, uh-oh, telling the truth equals pain. And at that moment, the kid learns, don't tell the truth. So, you know, the truth one is helping kids understand that when they tell the truth, when they don't tell the truth, they're going to feel heavy. They're going to feel like something's not quite right. They're going to carry this lie on their back all day. So we make it highly visual for them to understand. So, you know, so many parents are like, of course I want to teach my children this, but how do I do it? Like, how do I do it? Well, how and did, maybe we should stop there because if the parents are asking you, how do you do it? That was my next question. In the context or the, our in present environment with adults and the media and everything that kids, especially the older yeah. kids, once they get to school, the five to nine, uh, yeah. they see a lot of not truth telling. And uh, yeah. well, what's the impact on that? Because if they're coming from a family who reads your books and follows the, the skills, uh, that you recommend and, uh, then they get into school, into kindergarten, and they see something, I would say, completely different. How do you work, how do you deal with that? Yeah. Um, you know, like, what I, what I always tell parents who ask me that, or even teachers, is to manage your own, your own place and your own state. So I, or myself, or my child, is not going to go change other people, at least probably not when they're five years old. So, to really check in and go, well, how am I doing on the truth side, you know, as mom? Like, am I telling the truth? And where am I not telling the truth? Because the biggest impact I'm, that my child has is basically who and what I am being, much more than what I'm teaching or telling him or reading to him, right? That's the sponge. That's more of the sort of unconscious transmission. So I check in and go, well, how am I not being truthful? And we all sort of, you know, we slip up in different ways. Or, and truthful can start off by saying, you know what, sweetheart, I'm having a really bad day. I'm really stressed. I don't have time to play with you. As opposed to trying to push through. He doesn't understand why I'm stressed. He maybe thinks it's about him. So there's a truthfulness even in sort of who I am, what's going on for me that they can understand. You know, the, the, the truth side, I would say, at school is to... You know, understand that people don't tell the truth because they're scared and because they feel like something bad's going to happen. And at that point, the child starts getting it. And it's the same thing with, you know, why do, why they're bad people? Why do some people bully? Why do some people call me mean names? Why are bad things, you know, happening? And I don't go, you know, that person is a boy or girl or that person is a bully. Like those labels don't help a child understand. They actually distance the child. They create judgment. They create separateness. They create that person's this and I'm that. I sort of go, you know, if that person is doing something bad, including not, not telling the truth, for example, or, you know, being mean, it's because they are feeling bad. They're feeling bad about themselves, about something that happened at home, about their body, about something with their pet. They are feeling bad. And suddenly you create empathy and compassion between those two children. It doesn't mean the child needs to go get involved with that person, but it creates an understanding as to why so much of that is happening because they are not feeling great. They don't love themselves. And so then you have a conversation about how loving yourself is actually the beginning of being able to love and exist, you know, whether it's in kindergarten or in the White House. I think that children, when you tell them the truth, uh, you, you really can see how they 
I don't know if you would call it spiritually or just you, you can really see how they accept it, how they feel like it's the truth. And when you don't yeah. tell them the truth, they know it instinctively. There's just, and, and maybe that's what you're talking about, but. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, and, and to I, really acknowledge them when they do tell the truth. You know, when I ask, you know, did this happen? And my, my five-year-old says to me, yes. The first words out of my mouth are not, you shouldn't, or I told you, or you weren't listening. The first words are, wow, thank you so much for telling me the truth. That is so great. It's so amazing. It's so courageous. I really want to acknowledge you for that. And then I go, Everest, which is his name, can you promise me that next time you listen to what I said, which is I asked you not to, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, yes, and I get an agreement. So he gets that, you know, okay, mom was really happy that I told her the truth, which is never done with young children. <laughs> no. So you're reinforcing it, which is what, I mean, that yeah. obviously, and the more you do that, the, he's going to, he or she is going to be telling you the truth. Um, Absolutely. So it's you mindful parent. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, no, it's no, re- go, go. Conscious parenting, mindful parenting. Um, we really have to be aware and do that kind of parenting if we want to raise uh, healthy adults, both, as you say, spirit, mind, body, and spirit. And I've never thought of myself as being particularly a spiritual person, but in this context and, and the way you're describing it, I see it's really, really important. I mean, starting from in utero, I guess. But I interrupted you. What were you going to say? No, I was going to say, you know, to that point, I think it's really important for kids to feel connected to more than just their family and for a lot of people you know that family unit is going to break up or it's going to move or it's going to change or someone's going to get sick or die or divorce or remarry and you know when when the certainty and the connection just comes from this family unit it becomes unsafe it becomes too much of a sort of this is out of my control now when a child feels connected to more than that And it could be God, and it could be nature, and it could be life. It could be the world. It could be the galaxy. It could be a community. But when there's an expansion of connection, which to me is, you know, the spiritual connection to other people, to the trees, to that's when a child feels like they are part of something greater. Um, You know, for, for my child, for now we have one child. If we have more beautiful, and if we don't, we don't. But there's a... What I teach my child is that he has a he has a soul family. He he can choose his brothers and sisters. There's more than just our family unit, and to me that sort of builds up his spirit. You know, same thing with teaching him that he has something called intuition, which is not something that parents ever teach their children. Like I've, most parents, you know, I ask for a show of hands. Even with eight, eight, ten, twelve year olds, have never mentioned the word intuition at home. And why is intuition so important? Because intuition puts children back on the inside and it puts them below their neck. And at school, all that's valued is above their neck. Their bodies are not valued. Their intuition is certainly not valued. And so teaching a child that there is a part of them that has answers, that has this thing called intuitive knowing about something that's good, something that's not good, you know, something that they know with a capital K. There's a sense of self-reliance. You know, not relying on mom, dad, teacher, you know, all of that to always be there. And children who have that intuitive sense about them, they, they're very, they're in their bodies much more than just in their mind, in their neck. And that's sort of what is, you know, in some ways overly acknowledged now. We, we, all, we tell adults 
go with your gut. Do you tell your four-year-old, go with your gut, honey? No, we don't. Exactly. The sooner the better. Like, if my child loses a toy, I don't kind of go, you know, where did you last put it? I go, what does your intuition tell you? You know, that's how it starts. And, I, you know, one of the exercises I did for him was I, I drew a, he drew a picture of himself. And I asked him, I go, where's your mind? Where's your heart? Where's your soul even? And where's your intuition? And he took a red marker and he put his intuition everywhere. It was in his hands and his arms and his legs and his stomach. You know, for him to get like, no, my whole body is there to sort of help and assist me, you know, with a problem, with a challenge, with a missing toy. What does your intuition say that, you know, your body really needs to eat right now? You'll be amazed. They're not going to necessarily go for the cake. <laughs> I want to, well, we have, we literally only have a couple minutes left because now sure. I, I want to also mention because you have a, you're doing a work also with adults as well as uh, the, the books that you've written for children. Um, and you have uh, mindful365.com, which is a, an apt, well, you have an app for adults so that they can get, which I actually signed up for, I have to tell you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, Dr. so I'm waiting. Um, yeah, so tell us about that, because that's some of your recent work, and it's, you know, in a, yeah. two minutes. See, I yeah. mean, these books were really informed by all the work I did with grown-ups, because most of the work shows me that our biggest wounds as grown-up trace back to when we were kids, and I thought, you know, is there a way now to bring some of that to the younger children? But you know, my work is focused on life skills for grown-ups, whether it's change and how to navigate big life changes, whether it's, you know, how do you balance everything that, you know, all different roles, which is something that I've done a lot of work on. But Mindful 365 was a way to pull together 20 years of what I've done, learned, researched, learned from others or from my own experience and put it in bite-sized content. For people like yourself who are busy, who live in a big city, who have families, who have commitments, and who are like, you know, I'd love to go on a retreat, I'd love to go away, I'd love to do yoga, I'd love to read books, don't have time. That's the solution. This is people who are want to learn, want to grow, have a phone in their pockets, and every day we send you one little bite-sized piece of content to think about, to ponder, to do, to experience. And it's a year-long journey into sort of self-transformation or at least self, self-knowledge finding out who and what you are. That's great. So because Mindful I'll, 365, I'm, yeah. Mindful 365, and I, I'm waiting for my little piece tomorrow, I guess, tomorrow morning. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, thank you. So uh, other website, another, uh, about a minute left. So what other what, what websites can we go to? Uh, to yeah, so for the yeah. books, obviously they're available on Amazon. If you want to try one, you can get one. They're available as a gift set right now. They're on sale for all three books. Um, but each book has obviously different themes in it, um, depending on what's most important to you, whether it's you know courage, whether it's gratitude, whether it's how do I help my child deal with being sad or mad, like all those different ones are, are in different books. Um, giggles.com is the website where you can see what parents have said, teachers, the endorsements we've gotten. Um, and then my personal website, whether it's you just want to get in touch or coaching or I'm doing an online course for parents and caregivers on different life skills, so seven life skills that I feel we're not teaching our children. And that is arianestudio.com, A-R-I-A-N-E-S-T-U-D-I-O.com. Ariane de Bonvoisin, New York Times best-selling author. Thanks so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks for all your great questions. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Joining me this morning is Dan Major, psychotherapist and writer and author of Roots and Wings, Mindful Parenting in Recovery. Dan Major knows all about parenting. He has two grown daughters. Like most parents, he's loved the experience of toddler discoveries, felt joy in his kids' successes, and grappled with their adolescent angst. But adding to these typical parenting joys, sorrows, and complicated issues, he had to deal with another element. He is in recovery. Dan guides parents in recovery and other parents, helping them to develop sensible methods for cultivating genuine happiness. He writes for psychologytoday.com and has 20 years of experience as a psychotherapist, clinical supervisor, and clinical director in behavioral health and addiction treatment settings. Welcome to the show, Dan. Nice to have you here. Thank you so much, Kathleen. It's a pleasure to be with you and with you this morning. Well, uh, as you mentioned before we actually got on the show, we're talking a lot about parenting today, uh, mindful parenting, and yours in particular you have a, a special, or a un, I don't know if it's unique, but an issue special to you is that you are a parent who is parenting in recovery. And so let's talk about that, because obviously there are some differences if you're parenting in recovery. Um, the mindful parenting piece of it, 
uh, is probably the same for all parents. But so what are we talking about when we're talking about mindful parenting in recovery? Roots and Wings, the title of the book. Well, basically, Catherine, all parents have a wide array of challenges as it relates to the many directions in which their their energy and their attention are pulled. Uh, addiction is is one very powerful pull, obviously, on on anyone's attention and energy. And the obsessive thoughts and compulsive actions that are inherent in the dynamics of of, of addiction uh, can I mean take people away from from most most of the other usual and healthy priorities that take place in life, certainly including parenting. And and, and so the so the book the the book basically speaks to parents in recovery as as a variation on the theme of the complexities of parenting. I mean basically it's a, it's a significant difference in degree potentially but as it relates to a difference in kind it's less than what many people might imagine insofar as as even people parents who don't have challenges related to addiction per se in particular to alcohol and other drugs can get caught up in obsessive lines of thinking, ruminating about a, a wide range of content swirling in their minds, uh, uh, whether it relates to shopping, to working out, to, to being uh, extremely involved in and attached to their particular work, and the compulsive actions that follow from that. Uh, and, and so there, are, there are, are sections in the book that speak very directly to parents in recovery, and that's because there are almost no books that address the, the needs of that particular population. Uh, let's talk about that. I want to stop you now because, Dan, let's start. Maybe it would be helpful to us if you talked about your own personal story. I mean, as I said in the beginning, you have two grown daughters, so you have raised two daughters, and you've raised them while you've been in recovery. How does your story begin as a parent and as a parent in recovery? Well, you know, it, it, it varies so much, Catherine, as it relates to to the history of of the active addiction of a given parent. So in, in, in my case, I had a thirty year long active addiction that was basically maintained at a functional level until I was diagnosed with a chronic pain condition and was prescribed uh various opioids uh, really at the forefront of the opioid epidemic in the late 1990s. And over the course of eight years, uh, my addiction to, to those uh, painkillers progressed to the point where it created uh, a wide variety of problems in my career, in my marriage, certainly in my family life and my relationship with, with my kids. And whereas I had been functional for a very long time, it got to a point where I wasn't. And I ended up needing to go into treatment. And that's when I found my recovery. And at that point, my daughters were 
19 and 14, respectively. The older one was away at college. The younger one was just starting her freshman year in high school. And so, so uh, my, my story is, uh, is specific insofar as they were in the heart of adolescence and moving into young adulthood, in the case of my older daughter, when I found recovery. And in many respects, my recovery was more disruptive to to what they had been used to than my active addiction, at least up until uh, the deepest, darkest parts of it, which really lasted the last year or or year and a half or so. So, in, in so uh, when you were raising the girls, a, when you were raising your girls, Dan, so how did you co- uh, cover up? I'm using the word cover up because you sort of you said you maintained you were high functioning, but you were obviously on the road to becoming, um, I'm using the term full-blown addict, but that it, it's a, it progresses, it's a progression and evolution, whatever. So how were you, what kind of parenting were you doing at that particular time until they were 14 and 18? Well, I was, I was there, I, I, was, I was present for them physically, very consistently, you know, uh, I had I had good jobs. I continued to move up the, the career ladder, and so their material needs were well taken care of. I, you know, have, having a master's in, in in social work and and being in the field and doing therapy and you know overseeing a wide range of programs, including for parents, I knew well intellectually what constituted quality skillful parenting my my own ability to 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 be emotionally available truly to be able to meet my kids needs to be consciously aware of and intentional in my interactions with them as opposed to responding more automatically and less consciously driven by the increasing needs of an escalating addiction uh was you know that that through things way out of whack, and it got to the point where it was it was almost impossible for me to be present and emotionally available, even if I was there physically. And so, and what? And, and obviously, your your wife, uh, I guess, at least was a part of all this. How did that fit into the family dynamics? In terms of yes, you were taking care of the family. You're you got professional on MSW. You're doing well in your career, as you say. You took care of all their financial needs and a physically secure environment, but emotionally not so much. And how did your wife fit into to that dynamic as a co-parent and as a mother? You know, um, she she worked also, and we were overall effective co-parents, um, even though we had, we had uh, a number of disagreements regarding, you know, the best approaches to certain aspects of parenting, as, as, as many, many parents do, and the kids are expert when it comes to identifying and, uh, and taking advantage of, of such things. But uh, my, my, my then wife, who, who uh, became my ex-wife subsequently, to her credit, uh, had wanted me to get into treatment years earlier. And because, because I continued to be successful professionally, continued to be 
functional. It basically fed my capacity to deny and minimize the extent to which uh, my my own burgeoning addiction affected me. And so it was it was only when it got to a uh, a, a place where there was enough enough damage done, including to my career, where I felt like I was at a crossroads and the only options were basically to either either uh, consider suicide for the first time since I was an adolescent or dive that much more deeply into my addiction, forsaking my, my family and the life that I knew altogether, or go to treatment. And when it came down to it, you know, one of the things that was that 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 uh, directed that decision for me, Catherine, was was knowing how incredibly harmful the suicide of a close relative, most notably a parent, is for for their surviving children, and that it's the by far number one risk factor for children as it relates to uh, to risk for suicide themselves and in, and in fact I I uh I watched myself doing a suicide self assessment as my addiction progressed and I got deeper into it and it got to a place where uh, where I realized that the only viable remotely healthy option was to go to treatment and get help and ultimately learn how to live without the use of alcohol and other drugs on a on a daily basis including including pain meds even though I continue to have a uh, a chronic pain condition but I deal with it very very differently in you know I uh, using a range of the mindfulness practices that I talk about in the book in particular in application to, to parenting but mindfulness practices as as you're probably aware of are are a, an approach to life but a set of specific actions that people can take to become increasingly conscious present centered in this moment and capable of more peacefully coexisting with things as they are, whether or not they're to their liking, whether or not there are various forms of emotional and physical discomfort, including related to what our children present to us, which many parents often find difficult because it is difficult. So let's let's go from, obviously you made the right choice. You got yourself into treatment and everything changed. And as you said earlier, that's not easy for the children either. It, it's not that everything suddenly becomes healthy again. It, it, it is the whole process of you changing, I, I imagine, had a huge impact on the family. You have an ex-wife, and, and now you said you, you're married again. Uh, so when we talk about, I mean, the purpose of this book, as I understand it, you want to help other mothers and dads and families to nurture healthy family dynamics through mindfulness. So let's get through talk about this mindfulness and I guess the first question is um, are there any basic parenting skills um, that are, are one is one better than the next because all parents many parents or most parents that I know think they do that they have they know they have the way they they have the best parenting skills they know what to do and um, <laughs> and very self-righteous and I must admit I was one of those but uh, I've changed and matured and evolved. So I'm asking you, are there any one parenting skill better than the other in the context of being a mindful parent? 
the most the most important skill I think that any parent can have. Now, certainly, certainly a knowledge of of fundamental child development, and one of the things that I go over in the book are the uh, the stages of psychosocial development from infancy through adulthood, uh, as articulated by by Eric Erickson, the renowned devel- developmental psychologist. So, for parents to have just a fundamental knowledge of where their kids are at develop me, developmentally, excuse me, and how the, how their needs evolve from one stage to the next. But really, the most fundamental skill, especially from a mindfulness standpoint, that that any parent can build is is uh, to develop increasingly the conscious awareness of one's own present experience, both internal as it relates to an awareness of our thoughts, our emotions and physical sensations, and external as it relates to the people we're with, the places we are, the interactions. That All right, so how specific, in. I'm going to ask you, like Dan, give us a, a specific example in terms of an interaction with our children, uh, where that comes into play, like a, a scenario. That, okay. Yeah. So, so, so this happened with my younger daughter, uh, and it was probably, let's see, I had been in, I'm in recovery nearly 12 years now. This was, I had been in recovery, uh, probably four to five years. And my younger daughter was in college and she was, she was with me for a visit and she was helping to make breakfast, which was, which was wonderful. But she was, she was, cooking the eggs on the stove without, without butter or oil. She, was, she wasn't using any sort of lubricant in the pan. And this was, this was crazy to me. It's like, well, of course, you know, parent and, and parents, you know, we know better. There's a need to be right, a certain need to be in control. And so, uh, so uh, I, at first, I began to try to press that issue. No, how can you do that? Of course, you need to use butter or oil, something to, to lubricate the, the, the surface of, of the pan first. But it occurred to me that, that she needed to have this process. Here she was. She was offering to help make the meal, which is a big deal unto itself. I want to support that rather than, rather than obstruct it or, or impair it in some way. So I became aware that this was my issue. And basically, I used that awareness to determine that it wasn't, it wasn't worth getting into some sort of power struggle with her about it. And I, need, I needed to simply back off and let her have her process and contribute her way based on, on allowing her age-appropriate autonomy. And when we had a much nicer, more healthy interaction as a result of it. And it was really a, a lovely time. And it started with my, with my coming to conscious awareness that I was interacting in a way which wasn't helpful to the situation, simply wasn't skillful, and was only, was only creating conflict. That's a great example because it's those everyday examples that we confront every day. It's not always these sort of esoteric decisions that we have to make with our children, but those are the things that happen 
on a daily basis. And we, and that's a great example of standing back and, as you say, examining yourself and your motivations in this context. Um, and that works with two-year-olds and it works for, with 20-year-olds, um, both. So, it, okay, so, it yeah. really does, Catherine. It's, 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 it's the kind of thing that it's, it's that simple, but it's far from easy because we have to catch ourselves in those moments where our thinking is, is, is basically carrying us away and our emotions are escalating because, you know, p- p- parenting, as, as you mentioned at the very beginning of our interview, it's this juxtaposition of the most beautiful, rewarding, joyful uh, aspects of human experience with the most brutally painful, difficult, challenging, frustrating, disappointing, and, and saddening. And so because parents' relationships with their kids tend to be so emotionally charged, that conscious awareness of what's going on inside of us in any given seemingly everyday small interaction and being able to use that awareness as a feedback loop to adjust, you know, what we say and how we say it and how we act with them is, is really a massive intervention. So feedback from children is an important part of parenting. Talk to us about that. It, and that relates to the issue of, of, needing to be right and needing to be in control, which, you know, many, many people have inherently anyway. It's part of their personality structure. But for, for parents, it's ratcheted up because, because, you know, we're, we're the parents. We're in charge. Our kids are supposed to, to listen to us. And yet, one of the most affirming and and, and supporting of our children's self-acceptance things that we can do is to, when they have feedback for us, even if it's feedback that we don't like or, or feedback that is difficult to hear, to be able to stop what we're doing and, and att- paying attention with intention. So it might involve turning off the TV, putting down the cell phone, uh, ignoring the, the email, closing the laptop, whatever, and turning our full attention, both physically and emotionally, towards our children, and, you know, making, making eye contact with them and allowing them to tell us whatever it is about their experience with us that, that they find important enough to share with us. We don't have to agree with it. And, and part of the, the, the mistake that many parents make is that listening to some, listening to anything means that somehow we agree with it. You know, just listening in, in a, in a way where, where, where we allow that, the children to say what it is they need to say. We don't have to agree with anything in order to accept it and in order to give our children the space they need to share with us their ex- their experience and we can so say, Dan we only know, have I, a couple I, we have a couple minutes left so I want to go on to one last question like what's the difference between this and active listening because you say in the book that it's a really a vital part of communicating so let's just 
active listening? How does that fit into the to this way of communicating with your children as a mindful parent? Well, what what, I, what my, that's a that's a great question, Catherine. Thank you. Basically, active listening requires mindfulness. It requires being present centered in that moment, in that circumstance with with our kids, giving them our full undivided in the moment attention. And when we when we do that, when when we're not when when we're not uh diverting uh our eye contact, when we're not taking phone calls or or uh, or responding to other notifications when we're truly there with our with our kids it communicates to them that they are important enough that they deserve our full attention that they are worthy of our undivided attention and we are truly there for them and that that really is one of the most powerful and healthy messages uh, a parent can send to their kids because when when they learn that we accept them no matter what it is that they say or do now and I, and I differentiate between accepting them versus accepting some of their actions and, and choices we can totally disagree and articulate uh, that related to choices and, and actions, but them as individuals, them as people, when we communicate that we accept them, they they learn that they are worthy of acceptance, and it's much more likely that they'll develop fundamental self-acceptance, which is one of the most... Dan, I, ha- I hate to interrupt you, but we have like one minute left, so I want to... Continuing this conversation... Uh, people will just have to read your book. So uh, the title of your book, Roots and Wings, Mindful Parenting and Recovery, you can buy it where? Online, Amazon, bookstores everywhere? It's, yes, it's, it's available at, at Amazon, probably the, the uh, easiest and, uh, and least expensive place to purchase it, Catherine. Great. It's also and a website available that we... at Barnes & Noble. Okay. And so it's also up. available at Barnes and Noble online and in stores. And I don't have a personal website at this point, but I do write a blog for Psychology Today. The title is "Some Assembly Required," so people can find my writing on a wide range of of topics related to learning, growth, and healing in general, including Thank addiction you. and mindfulness topics. Great, Dan Major, MSW writer in long term recovery and author of Roots and Wings. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Great having you here. Thank you so much for having me, Catherine. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 